When life gives you lemons, what? Make lemonade. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Every cloud has a what? Silver lining. You see where I'm going with this, right? It's not about the cards you're dealt, but what? Anybody know this one? Yeah. How you play the hand. These are are sayings that, that many of us are familiar with. Maybe you've used one or a few of these at one time or another. Maybe you've been told these things at one time or another, and you may have appreciated it or not at the time. And each of these phrases means something very similar. Each saying has to do with making the best of a bad situation. How many of y'all have ever had to do that before, by the way? Make lemonade when life has given you lemons. Yeah, we, we all have had to, to do that at one time or another. Look for the silver lining in a bad situation. And many of us know numbers of stories of people who have done this very well, right? Who have had to overcome great adversity and have made great work of a tough Situation. One example that came to mind for me when putting this sermon together was a major league pitcher in the 90s by the name of Jim Abbott. Anybody remember Jim Abbott? Yeah, yeah. Abbott was born without a right hand, but that didn't stop him. He had a love for baseball from a young age, and as he got older, he wanted to play professionally. Now, I'm sure... Of all the things Abbott could do without a right hand, no one thought when he was younger that pitching in the major leagues was one of them, right? But that didn't stop him. He became a star pitcher and quarterback in high school, but baseball was his sport. He went on to pitch at the University of Michigan, led them to two Big Ten championships. He led the USA team to a gold medal, and he was selected number eight pick overall in the 1988 draft. He was drafted by the California Angels. He played for, the, for other teams as well, played 10 years in the major league. And when pitching the ball, what Abbott would do is this, and I believe we have a video up here of it. Abbott would rest the glove on the end of his right forearm, and after releasing the ball, he would quickly slip his left hand into the mitt in time to field the ball. It's amazing, isn't it? Watch this. This is just incredible. That is making good work of a bad situation there, right? Of a tough situation. Batting was also not an issue for Abbott, if you can believe it. He didn't have to bat for the majority of his major league career, but, but when he did, he had a few hits during the game. And his, one of his teammates, Mariano Rivera, said he witnessed Abbott hitting home runs during batting practice. How amazing is that? Abbott was an amazing individual. He once said, it's not the disability that defines you. It's how you deal with the challenges the disability presents you with. We have an obligation, he says, to the abilities we do have, not the disability. Abbott was an amazing 
individual, a wonderful example of someone who made great work of a difficult situation. And there have been many others, haven't there? We lost a precious member of our family, David Teague. Talk about making the best work of a tough situation. David did. Years after years, day after day, month after month, year after year in that wheelchair, would be in here praising the Lord. I went by to visit him one day, and he was laying flat on his back, which he had to do for a lot of the time. And I asked him what he was up to, and he said he was just praying for members of our church family while he was in bed. Amazing. Now he has no use for that wheelchair anymore, right? He's standing and also kneeling, praising our Lord and Savior, experiencing wonderful fellowship with him. But he was a, he was a great example of this, right? And there have, been, there have been many other stories like this in our world of people who played a bad hand well, who found the silver lining in a tough situation. Guess what, folks? We learn in Scripture that our God works in this way as well. We learn all throughout His Word that He makes the best work in the worst of situations. This book is filled with story after story of God working in and through dark and difficult situations to bring about the best, most glorious, most God-honoring ends. This is the work that our God delights in doing. He delights in taking broken, messed up situations and restoring them and redeeming them and using them for his good and for his purposes and for his glory. And this morning we're going to learn of one such example of God working in this way. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. And as you're turning there, let me set the stage for you because it's been a while since we've been in the book of Acts. Several weeks ago, we studied about the death of Stephen. He was one of the great leaders in the church in Jerusalem in the first century when the apostles needed help caring for and leading the Christians in Jerusalem. We're told that they selected seven men full of the Holy Spirit and full of grace and full of power and full of wisdom, men of integrity, solid spiritually. And we learn in Acts chapter 6 that of the thousands they chose from, Stephen is at the top of the list. There was not a better, more godly leader than him. He was a champion for Christ. And we learn in Acts chapter 6, not only was he actively involved in pouring himself into the people in the church in Jerusalem, but he was also at work throughout Jerusalem making Christ known. We learn in Acts chapter 5 that that the Christians in Jerusalem, though they had been told by the religious leaders not to preach Christ, were told they filled Jerusalem with his teaching, and Stephen played a pivotal role in this. He took the gospel to the Jewish outsiders like himself. Remember, Stephen was a Grecian Jew, He was a Hellenist who they were a group of Jews that were not originally from the area. They had moved back to the area. And he took the gospel message to them and he traveled around to their synagogues preaching Christ 
to them, which made the leaders of their synagogues furious. They charged Stephen with blasphemy against Moses and against God and against the law and against the temple. The four pillars of Judaism, they said Stephen was was speaking against those things by preaching Christ and that he was an enemy of God's. So Stephen defends himself against these charges in Acts chapter 7. And he, at the end of his sermon, remember, he turns the table on his accusers and he accused them of being God's enemy because they had rejected and killed God's man, his Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He called them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He said to them, you are God's enemies because you have rejected God's man. You have betrayed and murdered the righteous one, God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Stephen was a bold man of faith, a a champion for Christ. But his boldness got him in trouble with the Jewish leaders. They wanted to kill him. But you would think that just as God had delivered Peter and John and the other apostles from prison in a miraculous way, you would think he would do the same for Stephen here, right? You would think that just like he sent an angel to rescue his apostles and he would rescue Peter in a miraculous way, as we'll see in the chapters to come once again, you would think that he would rescue Stephen in this way from this situation so he could go on to lead God's people in this great mission to take God's gospel message out, take the message of the Lord Jesus out of Jerusalem and onto Judea and Samaria and onto the ends of the earth. But we learned a few weeks ago that's not what happens, right? After Stephen says these things, he is dragged out of the city and he is stoned to death. This great champion for Christ loses his life after a very short time in ministry. Think about this. This had to be devastating for the church at this time. Stephen was their guy. He was their great leader. He was their example, a great man of faith, and he gets killed before the gospel leaves Jerusalem. Talk about a dark and difficult time. This was it. And after Stephen was killed, we're told, persecution broke out everywhere, all over Jerusalem, led by this zealous Jew named Saul. In Acts 7.58, we learn that those who stoned Stephen, they laid their garments at Saul's feet. And Luke also tells us in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of the execution of Stephen. This was a dark time in the church. But what we're going to learn today is though God allows this great persecution to take place, he works in and through it to take his message of salvation out of Jerusalem and on out into the world. He makes great work of this horrible situation he uses persecution to spread his gospel how about that so today we're ending our missions month by looking at this great mission work that god does through his faithful disciples in and through this terrible situation we're going to be looking at verses one through eight in acts eight this morning And I want you to notice three things here, and you already have them spelled out for you in your outline. I messed up on that. I meant to have some spaces so you can have fun filling them in. I'll do that next week, okay, for those of y'all upset. 
want you to notice three points here. Number one, the great persecution of the faithful. Number two, the great work of the faithful. And number three, the great fruit of the faithful. First, notice the great persecution of the faithful. Look at verses one through three. Luke says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we learn here, things go from bad to worse for God's people after the persecution, after the death of Stephen. Now, you should know this has been brewing for some time, right? In the occasional arrest of Peter and John and others, for preaching Christ in and throughout Jerusalem and in the temple, but it blew up after the stoning of Stephen. They had locked up and released and locked up and beaten and released God's disciples for a while now. They finally say, enough is enough. They kill Stephen, and after that we're told a great persecution against the church arose in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice something here. Stephen's death, And this great persecution, though terrible, did not take God by surprise. Do you know that? Remember Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He also says in John 16, they'll put you out of the synagogues and they will kill you thinking they're offering service to God. That is exactly what's taking place here, folks. What happens here in Acts 8 is just a fulfillment of Christ's words. We learn here that many in the Jewish community, many of the religious leaders at this time, they hated any and everyone associated with Christ. And they were putting them out of the synagogues. They were putting them away in prison. They were putting some to death. And a guy by the name of Saul is leading the charge And Saul truly believed that he was doing this, offering service to God. Though we don't have all the gory details right here of what took place, we know it was bad, and we know it scattered believers all over everywhere. Luke tells us, the believers in Jerusalem were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Persecution was so bad that it spread the believers out and scattered them out all over everywhere. But look at the end of verse 1, except the apostles. I love that, don't you? The greatest of persecutions did not move them. They stayed. They were courageous men. There was more work to be done in Jerusalem, more people who needed to be reached for Christ, more believers who needed to be discipled, more who needed to be equipped. So the apostles, along with some others, stayed. Notice the boldness of the faithful who remained. Look at verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now this verse highlights for us the sadness of this time for the church, but it also highlights the great boldness of the faithful who remained in Jerusalem. We're told here, not only did they bury Stephen, but they made great lamentation over him. Now, let me explain something to you. In this day, Jewish law prohibited funeral observances for a condemned criminal. Stephen had been condemned 
to die. Remember, they had all their T's crossed and their I's dotted. They wanted to kill Stephen, but they didn't want it to come back on them. So they made sure they had the right number of witnesses there. They made sure that those eyewitnesses were the ones who killed Stephen. They followed the the procedures by the book to kill Stephen. Stephen was a condemned criminal. He was condemned to die as a blasphemer and a lawbreaker. So these devout men who buried Stephen and lamented for him were doing so at great risk. So God allowed for many of the faithful to remain and minister in Jerusalem. And we know that the church remained strong there. It endured under great persecution. James The brother of Jesus became pastor there. We also learn, we're going to talk about later, the great Jerusalem council that takes place in Acts 15. So many faithful remained in Jerusalem. But we're also going to see that a great many faithful Christians were driven out of Jerusalem and on into Judea and Samaria and elsewhere. And again, the one leading the charge against these Christians is Saul of Tarsus. Look at verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now the word translated ravaging here is a strong word. It means Saul was doing his best to rip the church apart. He was doing all he could to destroy Christ's church, entering house after house. He went up and down the block, entering into every house, snagging up Christians left and right and dragging them off to prison. Saul had one goal, to rip the church apart, to wipe Christianity out, to destroy the church, and to imprison any and everyone associated with the Christian faith and the church. And though Luke does not give us specifics here on what exactly Paul did, Paul does later on in the book of Acts. You have this in your spiritual growth guide, but in Acts chapter 26, listen to this, beginning in verse 9, Paul tells of what he did. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Wow. He not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but he cast his vote for them to be put to death. And he tortured them and tried to make them blaspheme. Now notice Paul is saying these things after he's already been converted in Acts 26 because he says the fact that I made them curse Christ was blasphemy, right? He says, in a raging fury, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. He chased them all over everywhere like a man possessed. And notice something else here that just jumped out at me when I read it. Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do these things. Get this. Paul thought what he was doing was right, but he was wrong. There are many in our world today who say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. They say whatever you think is right is right. Folks, that's a bunch of junk. It is. Paul was zealous. 
He was sincere. He thought he was right in persecuting Christians, but he was dead wrong. You can be sincerely wrong in what you believe. Do you know that? You can. Paul thought what he was doing was right. He thought he was offering service to God, but the truth was he was persecuting God. Remember what Jesus said to him? In Acts chapter 9, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was wrong, didn't know it. So this was a dark and difficult time for the church. A great leader in their church had been killed. And this tight-knit group of believers had been scattered all over everywhere. And on top of that, you had this zealous Jew named Saul who was working tirelessly day and, and night, going from house to house, snatching up believers all over everywhere, all throughout Jerusalem, chasing them everywhere, putting them into prison, persecuting them, and was even petitioning for them to be put to death. This was a dark time, but like I said earlier, though it was, we're going to learn God makes great work out of the worst of situations. Look at point number two. Though Luke tells us of the great persecution of the faithful, he also highlights for us the great work of the faithful. Look at verse four. This is great. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. How about that as a response? The word now can also be translated therefore. It's a connecting word that connects two passages together and it indicates something that results from something else. So let me explain this. In verses 1 through 3, we learn that the church is being persecuted and believers are being scattered everywhere because of this persecution. And in verse 4, we're told, as a result of that, as a result of being scattered due to persecution, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is a natural result for them. A natural response to them being persecuted is for them to go out and preach the word. What a response. You would think that it would say they were persecuted and naturally they headed for the hills, right? To hide from their persecutors. Not true of these guys. They went out from Jerusalem and they went out preaching wherever they got tossed, wherever they got chased to, that's where their ministry continued. Paul and others tried to stamp out the fire of the gospel in Jerusalem and all they did was scatter embers all over everywhere. How awesome is that? Persecution made matters much, much worse for the ones doing the persecuting. Isn't that just like our God? To use the very means these enemies of the cross used to stop the gospel, to spread the gospel. They thought persecution would stop the gospel, but God used persecution to spread his gospel. It's awesome. That's how our God works. That's our God at work. Making the best work. Out of the worst of situations. Though his people were spread all over Judea and Samaria due to persecution, they were right where God wanted them to be, right? Remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? You're going to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and then where? Judea and Samaria. 
exactly where they got chased to. I love what John MacArthur said about it. Look at this quote. This is great. Satan was doing his best to stop the spread of God's gospel, and God was just checking off point two in his outline. I love that. Man, I wish I would have said that. That's great. That's exactly what happened. Notice something else here that is, that is key. We learn here that it was right for the believers to go out and be preaching the gospel. The apostles stayed, but the lay people went out from Jerusalem with their leaders and they went out preaching the word of God. Notice the faithfulness of one of their leaders that Luke highlights for us. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Here we have mention. It's fitting that it's Missions Month once again because we have mention of one of the first missionaries in the New Testament. This is Philip. More about Philip. He was one of the seven that was chosen along with Stephen to lead the Christians in Jerusalem. He was a missionary. He was an evangelist. He was a prophet. He was a wonderful man of God, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and power and grace. He was truly a mission-minded individual to go to the Samaritans because many Jews, they despised the Samaritans. Remember, we learned when we were in the Minor Prophets that the Samaritans were the Jews who went north to the northern kingdom. When the kingdom divided, 10 of the 12 tribes went up north to form the northern kingdom of, of Samaria, and they were a wicked people. And God tried to redirect them by sending his prophets, and they weren't listening to his prophets. They weren't listening to God. And so God sends the wicked nation of Assyria to punish this northern kingdom for their disobedience. And over time... Many of them intermarried with these godless nations that moved in and they became a mixed race. And many of the Jews from the south viewed them as a mongrel and impure race. They had a lot of prejudices, didn't they? We're going to learn that they're going to have to overcome a whole lot more. But they viewed them as being second-rate, inferior Jews. Yet though that's the case, these prejudices did not affect Philip, right? He was an evangelist to the Samaritans and he laid the groundwork for the work there. We're told he went and he proclaimed to them the message of Jesus. And notice, God did a great work through Philip there. Look at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. The Spirit of God is doing a great work here in Samaria. And, and Philip, we're told, he was, as he was doing these great signs, and as he was preaching God's gospel, the Holy Spirit opened the hearts and the minds of the hearers here in Samaria. We're told that the crowd, with one accord, paid attention to what was being taught by Philip. Notice the mighty signs he did. Look at verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There were many in the crowd in that day that were delivered from unclean spirits. There were many who were paralyzed and lame who were healed. As we said in Acts chapter 5, the miracles done in this book, the book of Acts, were always accompanied by God's gospel message. And the reason why is because God uses miracles to highlight and to validate his message and his messenger. 
in Acts 8, God was drawing the Samaritans to this message and to his messenger through these mighty works performed by Philip. He had already performed great works all throughout Jerusalem, right? And many of the Jews were drawn to them. They heard the gospel and they responded in faith and God is doing the same work here with the Samaritans. And when we look at Philip's life, we learn a great point of application here, folks. Listen, wherever God allows life to take you, that is where he wants you to minister. Did you know that? Let me say that again. Wherever God allows life to take you, that is where he wants you to minister. No matter the circumstances, no matter if they're good or bad, his call on your life to be a witness for Christ remains. No matter what. Persecution drove Philip to Samaria, and so Samaria is where Philip ministered. Same is to be true of us. If a job has brought you here to Jacksonville, then Jacksonville is where God wants you to minister. If a tragedy has brought you here, then here is where God wants you to minister. If God has blessed you with children, your children are your ministry. The friends that God has given you, he has given you for the purpose of ministry and for his glory. So if you're wondering what God has called you to do in ministry, just look at your circumstances. Look at your family. Look at your friends and your vocation. That's your ministry. Listen, no matter what happens in this life, God's call on our life to be faithful remains the same. No matter what takes place in Washington, no matter what the Supreme Court decides, the call for us to be faithful remains. No matter the circumstances, good or bad, we're called to be faithful. Those in the early church, they understood this, which is why this great persecution then led to great ministry. And folks, it'll happen for you. No matter what you're going through in your life, you remain faithful, it'll lead to great ministry. So we've talked about the great persecution of the faithful and the great work of the faithful. Notice number three, the great fruit of the faithful. Look at verse eight. I love this. Very simple. There was much joy in that city. Why was there joy in the city? Because Christ was in the city. How about that? God blessed Philip's efforts like he did in Jerusalem. God used Philip's mighty works and his powerful message to save many in Samaria. He also blessed the great efforts of his disciples who went elsewhere. So when tough times came, they didn't put their faithfulness on a shelf, did they? They remained faithful wherever they were thrown, and God blessed their efforts wherever they went. Now, unfortunately, we don't often respond in this way, do we? When difficulties come, our faithfulness often gets shelved. And the reason why is because we fail to see the spiritual benefits of our trials because we're often only looking at how that trial affects me and not how God can and will use me in working and through me in the midst of difficulty. And so oftentimes our faithfulness gets shelved. This was not true 
of those in the early church scattered due to persecution. Though they were driven away from their homes, away from their families, their brothers and sisters in Christ, though they saw some of their friends and family put to death for their faith, they saw God at work in and through their trials, and they saw great opportunities that he presented them with in the midst of this tough time. They knew that the work that God was doing, get this, was much bigger than them, and they knew whatever happened, God's call on their life remained the same. Instead of viewing themselves as being displaced due to persecution, they saw God's hand in their circumstances, And they understood that what God was doing here was much bigger than themselves. He was using this difficult situation to open the door for them to do more ministry out in his world. And so they remained faithful. God used their faithfulness through this dark and difficult time to grow his ministry and to advance his kingdom in an even greater way. Wow, what a perspective. What a response. And there are many more examples of this, like we said, in Scripture of God using people in dark and difficult times to do great and mighty and wonderful things. But I'm convinced, and you should be as well, that there is not a greater example we have in God's Word than the work that God's Son does, the Lord Jesus. Scripture tells us He endured the darkest, most difficult of circumstances. We're told he not only endured the physical agony of the cross, but the spiritual agony brought on by our sin and brought on by God's wrath. As we sing in here on occasion, he became sin who knew no sin, and he endured God's wrath for us. As we also sing, I think we sang it today, he was crushed by God for us. And though Christ understood the horror of the cross before going to the cross, which is why he sweat drops of blood, right? In the garden, Christ also understood the spiritual benefit of the cross and he went willingly. Though the day Christ died was the darkest day in human history, it was also the most glorious because through the cross, the impossible, being made right with God was made possible. Through the cross, Christ conquered sin and death by enduring sin and death for us so that we could be saved from sin and death. And so that we, through him, could be dressed in his righteousness alone and faultless to stand before the throne. Once again, at the cross, we see God bringing about the best work in the worst of situations. Through the death of his son, God made a way for us to be forgiven, a way for us to be made right with him. Through the death of his son, God provides us through that death with life in Christ. So the question I want to send you out with today is this. Do you know him? Do you know God's Son? Have you responded to Him in faith? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you been made right with God through Christ? And do you have eternal life in Him? If not, I urge you today to give your life up 
and give your life over to the Lord Jesus. Turn from your sin and make Christ your Lord today and be saved. Let's pray.